Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hellaludin, joining you this morning. Remembrance and memorial saturated the news cycle this week. If you've been paying attention, all the pomp and fanfare around the Queen, it's rightfully brought up some dissonance, anger and complex feelings around what is chosen to be significant and what continues to be erased and denied. It's a strange thing to reckon with the symbol of colonial destruction being remembered with such reverence when First Nations and communities of colour continually plead for humanity or are rarely afforded this amount of complexity. This week, thousands of people are occupying space on the streets protesting the monarchy and calling for recognition of First Nations peoples with their own day of mourning. In many ways, being able to carve our own rituals of grief and remembrance are ways to resist powers of oppression. How do we tell stories of those who have been diminished or ignored in writing of history? How do we do justice to the lives they lived or the people they were? How does where we come from connect to where we are headed? These are some of the questions put forward in a new anthology by Liminal an anti-racist literary and art platform based in Nam, a collection from the long list of the inaugural Liminal and Pantera Press nonfiction prize. The book is titled Against Disappearance. The essays on memory are a powerful collection of First Nations and people of colour questioning the past and envisioning new futures, free from any shallow or singular story. Tanya Ali spoke to the editors of the title, Leah Jing McIntosh and Adolfo and Runwes, earlier this week on the importance of bringing together these works and fighting against the forced disappearance of cultures in so-called Australia through subversive and experimental writing and thinking. A few days ago, Tanya Ali held a timely and reflective conversation with editors of a new anthology titled Against Disappearance. 
It's a collection of essays by First Nations and writers of colour exploring ideas around memories, and really the book creates a world of paradoxes and collisions that are a refreshing take on what anti-racist literature could be. We begin by hearing their conversation in context, which was the public holiday declared for the Queen's passing. So for many cultures who've experienced the violence of colonisation, it can be seen as a political act to refuse to acknowledge this as a time of mourning. In thinking about their new title, Against Disappearance, Adolfo began by sharing the importance of forming our own rituals of remembrance as people who have experienced the erasure of colonialism. I think there are two two key things that are distinct but connected in in that kind of question. Uh, so there's there's remembrance on the one hand, and then there's there's ritual, I guess, um, rituals for remembrance on the other hand. So at least from from my vantage point, remembrance is is super important because of the centrality of oral and subjective you know, history in our lives, especially because for many of us, we're not really included in official uh, records of history, or maybe we're included, but in a very kind of one-dimensional way or in a simplified, sometimes dehumanized way, you know, almost as concepts. And so by by remembering, you know, our, our own acts of remembering, they, they, they foreground the intimate, they foreground our humanity. Um, and they also tap into that very human desire to be remembered, which is why it's political, uh, you know, this conversation about the archive and about history. Uh, yeah, and then ritual, on the other hand, I think is a super powerful, you know, act of, of codifying that very intimate, very personal behavior. You know, we get... We derive meaning from repetition. We, 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 we have habits, you know, we have kind of self-talk and things we say to ourselves to affirm for us that these things are real, that they are true. And so by ritualizing remembrance, it's not just, I don't know, like maybe something shifts in the human brain where it moves from something that is just, you know, whimsical or capricious. You know, I, today I remembered that I needed to buy X, Y, Z to something more meaningful. Today I remember, like I did yesterday and the month before and the year before, this person who was important to me, this family that was important to me, this community. This idea of ritualizing remembrance continues, particularly in thinking through how we are able to tell our own stories. Liminal was founded in 2016 by Leah Jing McIntosh. They've been at the helm of creating boundary-pushing work in so-called Australia with a focus on the Asian-Australian experience. They continue to work to create new spaces and opportunities for creatives of colour, as well as running mentorships and literary prizes for First Nations artists. This anthology is very much an extension of what Liminal has been doing since its beginning, carving out unique space in a racist, whitewashed landscape. Leah has been on Race Matters a few times and reflected on how her ideas of race and representation evolved over the years through the prism of Liminal. I think it really speaks to how we're just always constantly learning and evolving and it's really important to think about that and not be static. Um, I know that many of my ideas are just not new. They just always feel new when we come to them for the first time, but it's always just building on the work of others. I feel like for me, my relationship to this concept of representation has like necessarily changed in my work as a response to the landscape as a response to where I'm working so with liminal it initially really was the goal because there was a dearth of representation within 
the arts and specifically for, for my work within the literary sphere. Um, and so it felt like the goal, but as, as I've been working, it's really stopped being the goal and rather being the first step. And I really love that shift because you kind of, the problem is that you need to get to the step in order to go beyond it. And I think what often gets lost in the representation argument is that it shouldn't just be about like who you are, but it needs to be about what you do. And especially to like make the world more just or more equitable, how you work to open doors to reach back and pull people like through with you. The evolving politics has made way for this anthology to be possible. Not just thinking about who is represented in these pages, but ways to resist values that are imposed by white culture. From the introduction of Leah to all the pieces in this book, something that is really refreshing is how we're not anchored by the white gaze. Like, the book isn't about justifying humanity to the values of whiteness. Here's Adolfo sharing about what guided them in this editorial process. I, I wasn't thinking about not speaking to white culture, but more about not speaking with the language and with the modalities of white culture, which is to say that uh, I was very conscious, and this was something that Leah and I were quite um, strong on uh, from, from the very outset, and Pantera were very supportive, that we didn't want to simply reproduce and adopt the, the very, look, rigid um, kind of post-enlightenment, very focused on reason sort of structure of, of the traditional or the conventional essay. We were very open to uh, hesitations or having multiple voices and perspectives to having deliberately messy structures. Uh, we ended up having a universe, a galaxy of different citation styles because that plurality was very important for us because that is what makes this book different from a traditional essay collection or a traditional long form piece of nonfiction. We weren't just developing one idea with a very clear thesis and then a set of premises and conclusions that followed, you know, syllogistically from each other. I mean, we both are aware of that. We're both quite nerdy people who were educated in the white system. We know how to argue like that. And so do our writers. But what was fascinating is to allow them to deviate from that. And in the editing process, we were very conscious of allowing these slippages or these, these deliberate deviations from convention and tradition to flourish. The relationship between memory, time and place are ongoing threads in the book. These are not really stable concepts. Instead, they are slippery, they bend, and they break. Here's Leah speaking more on why it was important to rupture form and expectation in this way. Yeah, I feel like as a like a literary scholar, my first gesture is always to separate things into form and content, um, even though in, in the end they're inextricable. But I was thinking about this the other day in that, like, in terms of content, as Adolfo has just said, it's like there's a messiness, there's this beautiful slip, slip, slipperiness almost with, with what the writers are talking about quite often. But then something that we also thought a lot about was like how we would subvert the form. Um, and like it comes from this knowledge of colonial practices because you need to be able to understand how something works before you subvert it. But one way that we 
do this and it's a very very minor way um is the way in which we demarcate languages other than english within the book so like most major publishing houses put these languages in italics to mark them as other and i think it's really important even as the very smallest intervention to refuse this and to like keep them in the body of the text to not other other languages to incorporate them because they make up the fabric of the writer's reality. They're not other, they're, they're just language. And I think you can see this gesture even in film at the moment where often the filmmakers re might refuse to translate, for example, I'm thinking of like everything everywhere all at once is it's in like four different languages, but a monolingual um, audience member will have a completely different experience to, you know, someone who can speak some or all of the languages that are on the screen and it's so fascinating to think about different audiences and who might be approaching the text so I think that was really important to to both of us to think through even the tiniest things within this book as a way in which to kind of break break down who our audience might be really open it up to yeah to people like us. <laughs> We're hearing editors of the new anthology titled Against Disappearance, Leah Jing McIntosh and Adolfo and Runwez in a conversation from earlier this week, they explored the complexities of pulling together the many threads of a publication spanning works by First Nations and people of colour. Here's Leah on how this came to be and what it is to weave such an intricate collection of anti-racist writing, especially in the context of a literary prize, which can usually be a really rigid and elite context. So it kind of all started back in 2018 when I did some research into Australian literary prizes and found there's like quite a history of racial bias towards, um, well, towards white writers, for white writers, <laughs> um, against non-white writers. Um, and I think when a prize claims to be Australia's most prestigious literary prize or that they uniquely foster Australian literature, it's really important to like drill down and consider what that means because I, I think I'm really interested in who deserves prestige, who's considered talented, who decides what's worth publishing or supporting or marketing or studying. So in 2019, we ran our first fiction prize for First Nation writers and writers of colour, created a book out of that called Collisions, and then... Um, Adolfo is an incredible essayist and I love I love essays and it kind of very naturally formed and we were like what if what if we run a non-fiction prize um, <laughs> and worked with the wonderful Pantera Press to make that happen and the the winner of the prize got $10,000 the runners-up got um, $2,000 in the end um, and it was just it was thrilling to be able to create this for the first time so that's where all of the pieces come from, the 20 pieces. And then what's really interesting, I think, about that kind of process is because we didn't commission them, 
we then had this really fascinating process of having to pull them all together and really find through lines. And I think I'm okay at it, but Adolfo is a genius at it. Um, <laughs> and we like spent days thinking about how we would create kind of some kind of structure. It's actually quite funny because someone the other day like messaged me and was like, oh, I'm reading them out of order. I'm so sorry. I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Like, I really like that we created these through lines. The act of curation, you know, we all know this is very much an act of power, you know, perpetuation or, you know, the apportioning of power, the division of power, the diffusing, the diffusion of power. Um, and so from the prizes perspective, what I really love about what, and let's be honest, this is, you know, Leah spearheading Liminal as a, as a platform or as a, as a project. But, you know, the wonderful thing about Leah's work in this regard is that she is kind of peering open and, and seeing beneath how the mechanisms of prizes and then therefore power concentration in a certain group can be challenged. So this prize was from the very outset, uh, initiated by instigated by and then you know sustained by a group of very powerful very uh very switched on very wonderful um people of color the judges people of color it was open it was a prize for people of color and there was this kind of cross-pollination this generative conversation across and through what is otherwise a very yeah straight and narrow path that has been the same for a very long time uh, I guess when we were curating the book then, when we moved from the prize to, you know, from, I guess, you know, what, like a, assigning value, which is maybe what prizes do, to then showcasing, which is what curation is about, we were very conscious about making sure that a multiplicity of voices were, were given space and allowed to tell their stories, because there is a multiplicity of stories. The stories weren't speaking over each other and in a way perpetuating maybe lateral erasure between each other. So this concept of people of color or Asian Australian or, you know, whatever all these, these labels are, um, they're quite, they're quite hollow in many ways. And so we, we tried to offset that by, by giving them concrete form, by making them tangible. And that's what the, this range of stories does is it shows you different and differing ways of being uh, Australian or, you know, being human. In thinking about having a multiplicity of voices, in Adolfo's words, how do we resist conflating our experiences as settlers of colour with First Nations peoples, which can so often happen even in the context of anti-racist work? Here's Adolfo again. Ooh, the toughest question of all. So Leah mentioned earlier the idea of moving beyond the mere fact of representation. And this is something that Leah and I both separately and together work very consciously on, very deliberately on, uh, because it's important that we match not just the conceptual, um, oh, sorry, that we match the conceptual with the material. So the material can take many forms, you know. Um, it could be as simple as paying the rent, as some people do through you know like the literal um sharing of money to to enable reparations for the peoples that whose lands have been stolen who continue to live with the ramifications of genocide um but then there are other ways to do this as well so as settlers i feel um, i strongly believe we have a responsibility to push back against the systems that look yeah still continue to disadvantage and displace 
First Nations peoples that continues to refuse to acknowledge their centrality in this culture that, you know, in which they should be central. So in our context, you know, we, we think about how people's stories, as I mentioned earlier, don't inadvertently silence or don't inadvertently speak on behalf of these First Nations peoples when they should themselves should be allowed to tell their own stories, not just, not just tell their own stories, but also have the power to enable others in their communities to tell their stories. So I guess there's this, there's this important acknowledgement and actioning of uh, making room, making space. And I feel like these days, these words are bandied around quite often. Uh, look, sometimes they're heartfelt, sometimes they're meant, but I think we need to action them as well, you know? So to decenter, to make space, to make room at the table, all of these phrases, you know, we need to really actively uh, do these things. I think it's really important to think about how we can create solidarity and centre Indigenous experience in a material way. Um, so one way in which we do this is by making sure we invite an Indigenous judge to the panel. So this year it was Maddie Clark for our fiction prize. It was Evelyn Araluen. Um, and specifically for Against Disappearance, it was really important for us to open the book with a First Nations voice um, because I think Adolfo and I strongly believe First Nations first. Um, and it happened, just so happens that Michaela Saunders is just the most brilliant writer and it was the perfect piece to open the book on. Um, it begins with the line, I write to remember, I write to not forget. And she is in this piece about her Uncle Kev. It's titled Communing with Uncle Kev Through the Archives. She's thinking about her life alongside the life of her Uncle Kev, but also thinking about what it means to write against the archive and what it means to subvert it and refuse it but also use it and she just gave us the most incredible piece of writing and I think the way in, in which we like worked with her and made sure that this opened the book was just very important um, because it sets the tone for the rest of the book where we are like there are many themes which kind of follow through from that piece all the way through to the end. Um, but I, I also think like this, this, this concept of solidarity needs to be, as, as they say, like it needs to be a verb, it needs to be active. It's not just something that's done. It's something you need to constantly do. Um, I think in the introduction, something we did try to kind of untangle and I had a lot of help with this because I really couldn't find the words for it alone. Um, and essentially I write that who is us? Like we really were trying to figure out who is us, who is this coalition and came to this like realization that the coalition created in reaction to racism is just going to be unavoidably complicated and imperfect. Um, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. It's just that it needs to always be in motion. And I think that's what we were talking about at the start is that things are always changing and you're always responding, but you're just always still working. And yeah, so that I think is what engines 
engines this book is this knowledge that it's not perfect, but it is an attempt. Things are always in motion. Solidarity is tangible work that is ongoing and complex. Yet the pages of this book beam with hope and possibility. There's a final work by Frankie Chunkok Lun reminding us you are always becoming, lending itself to the question of where Lear and Adolfo find hope and possibility in the work that they do. Um, Frankie's essay is one of my my personal favourites in, in this collection. And during the, the ordering sessions, uh, it kind of naturally fell into the last position. And then I remember quite distinctly that there was a point where Leah was considering, was, was suggesting that perhaps we consider something else, you know, because Frankie's essay was perhaps, you know, yeah, it's busy, but I think it's deliberately busy. And that's what I love about it. But, you know, there was this conversation about maybe we should end on something more simple and hopeful. Um, but in the end, we decided to stick with it precisely because of, of that hopeful note of ending on that, that, that line. But also there's this idea of, of, you know, again, multiplicity of, of seeing from different perspectives. And because this essay talks about humanity, and I don't mean in that kind of annoying, kind of flattening idea of we are all humans, let's be humanists, let's not, you know, let's not talk about race. No, it's not that kind of humanism. It's the other kind of human that, that situates all of the, the enormous span of human conflict and human divisiveness and division into the context of the planet and the cosmos and history and time. You know, we are small, yes, in the grand scheme of things, but we are also able to change and grow and influence each other and inspire each other and make this tiny speck that we're on, because it is this, this essay, it's incredible, is on a planetary scale. Um, and a multi, you know, multi-historial scale as well. Um, we are small, but we also have the ability to make this place that we're in as beautiful and and as as restorative and generative as it could be, if only we wanted to. If always, if if only we wanted to become this thing, this this spark of potential. I'm going to be cliche and cheap and talk about my niece and nephew who are teenagers. Uh, you know, they grow, they're, they're living and they're growing up in the western suburbs of Melbourne, which is a multicultural hub. Um, and, you know, they're friends with a whole bunch of kids of different backgrounds. And I see them hang out with their kids because sometimes I'm around, like that annoying gross uncle in the background. And, and they just don't care about, yeah, race, gender, sexuality, the, the, the stuff that maybe from our generation and older seem to care about so much and you know is ultimately the origin for a lot of the the subjugation and oppression that a lot of people feel um normally i believe you know it's around adolescence that we start learning this stuff maybe from our parents maybe from the institutions that surround us um but these kids somehow seem to be more interested in whether they can make TikTok jokes or something than about the color of someone's skin and all that stuff. They do see race. They acknowledge race. They interact with each other with race and with gender, with sexuality, with, with disability, all of that stuff in mind. And yet they find a way to enjoy each other's company and be there for each other beautifully. Um, I guess from that microcosm, I'm hoping to extrapolate that we are entering a period where perhaps the work that we have been doing, not just us, but also our elders who have come before us have been doing perhaps is beginning to sink in. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic. I'm not normally optimistic, um, but perhaps we need this. 
I feel like Adolph is looking to the future for hope and I like that so much more than my answer, which is I'm always looking at the past in particular in the work of others, um, in the work of people who've come before. And I, I feel like lately I've really been turning to reading as a way to fill my cup, as a way to return. Yeah, but I think we need all things. I think there's never an excess of hope. Reading the past and finding hope in the archives and looking towards futures of possibility, in many ways that brings together a lot of what the book is envisioning. We'll finish with Leah reading an excerpt from her introduction from the anthology, grounding us with the questions and considerations that are at the heart of this volume, leaning into the richness, messiness, and urgency of telling all these stories. When we were making this book, I kept accidentally referring to it as after disappearance. Each time I did, my wonderful co-editor Adolfo would gently correct me. It became a sort of joke between us, an inexplicable slippage. I've been thinking about this space between after and against. What happens after a disappearance? Loss opens into a clear blue horizon, darkening with all we do not know. In so-called Australia, we seem to be citizens of an after. The enforced disappearance of cultures is often framed as natural or unavoidable, the way of things, when it is in fact the opposite. Hegemonic power is as much about the story as it actively erases as those it tells. So it suits the colony to mythologize a Terranalius, to declare indigenous cultures non-existent and to work to make them so, rewriting cultures that have always been here into nothing. For if nothing was here, then nothing could be murdered, or so the logic loops, bloodied hands wiped clean. It still suits the colony to continue this violence, overt or clandestine, always transforming, ever-present. This raises and builds its foundations atop a carceral state. This racism takes the shape of the white Australia policy, of the state-sanctioned abduction of children, and even when official legislations are repealed, racism persists, so surreptitious and so unnoticed that con to condemn it is to expose yourself to even more violence. Racism is an action and a rationale for action, and so in conjunction with physical violence, racism is insidious. Found in the archives or in the commons, in the media or in the curriculum, each purposeful erasure or elision or refusal or revision or overturned murder charge, infiltrating and warping and claiming collective memory. In this context, against is a rallying cry. It is a commitment, a promise, an event. It requires work, and the work does not stop. Those who work against, against disappearance, against racism, against the colony, share in a commitment to praxis, to the small everyday actions that show us a way towards new futures, a way to oppose the lie that writing does not matter, that culture cannot have material repercussions, that it too disappears when faced with racism, genocide, and colonization. This book is another attempt at undoing erasure Whatever its antithesis may be, whatever presence we encounter from now, we know from history that change is not instantaneous, so we can only keep building.
That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sharika Hallelujah. Thank you so much to our guests, Leah Jing McIntosh and Adolfo and Runwes for inviting us into their literary world that they've created. Thank you to Tanya Ali for helping us interview and craft this piece. You can catch Adolfo and Leah in Sydney on November 1 at the launch of Against Disappearance at Glee Bookstore in Glebe. We'll link those details in our show notes. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.